Greetings, Crown and Crozier friends. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. For this episode, we're bringing you the second installment of our conversation with Dr. Gavin Ashenden, former honorary chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II and recent convert to the Catholic faith. In our first segment, we heard from Dr. Ashenden about the role of honorary chaplain to Her Majesty and about the British monarchy's unique experience with the fusion of religious and temporal authority. In this next segment, we learn about Dr. Ashenden's personal story of what compelled him to walk away from the Church of England and eventually enter into communion with the Church of Rome. We covered a heck of a lot of ground with Dr. Ashenden, from discovering the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung to getting a flavor of Marxism at the hands of the KGB to threats of assassination and the prospects of martyrdom and to discerning the difference between being guided by revolution and being guided by revelation. Dr. Ashenden's storytelling comprises a good chunk of this episode, so we invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy this next installment of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Thanks so much for tuning in. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. So let's stick for a moment with where you came in and your role and your story. In 2017, after nine years of service or so in the role of honorary chaplain, and I believe it was over 35 years of service as an Anglican priest, you decided to step back and to resign and to walk away from, from everything that you've just shared with us in terms of the structure and the history. Tell our listeners a little bit more about the story. What, what, what prompted that, that monumental decision? Well, I'm a slightly eccentric figure, um, not, not, by, not, on, not on purpose. Uh, my own spiritual journey involved a very grateful fusion of the evangelical, the Catholic, and the Pentecostal. And the Church of England had the possibility of being the best of all worlds, potentially, albeit tragically in a broken relationship with Rome, which needs to be healed, whatever happens. But if you accept that as a fact of life, it is no bad thing to be able to be evangelical, Catholic, and charismatic, and to allow them to inform each other. But I had, so I had worked for 10, I trained as a lawyer originally, then I had an evangelical conversion uh, when, when a, an evangelical Anglican priest did a mission to my university. I then found myself called to the Anglican priesthood rather reluctantly, and I struck a deal with God. I said, look, if you, so long as you go on pouring out your Holy Spirit, I, I will give myself to you to help evangelize a country. But if you ever turn it off, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not doing religion. I'm certainly not doing state religion. And, you know, that's the deal. <laughs> I did 10 years as a parish priest, and that was okay. I, I wasn't a particularly good one, though I was a conscientious one. And uh, I'm a sort of, I'm a, I'm a third-rate intellectual. So I, 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 I very much wanted to get back to university where I felt at home. And I, I by this time, got four degrees in four different disciplines, law, theology, psychology, and, and, uh, and literature. And I got a job at, a, at our most radical and secular university, and that's quite important, uh, as a half academic and half chaplain. So I, I lectured as a, 
psychology and philosophy prof and was ran an, an interfaith team of chaplains. And during this period, I kind of went off the rails a bit. I never lost my creedal orthodoxy, but I lost my ethical orthodoxy. Partly because uh, when you're dealing with a place as confused and as heterodox and as ethically challenged, in inverted commas, as, as a university, you kind of have to go to where people are to stand any chance of bridging the gospel. It's a very difficult job to do. And I don't know how I could have done it very diff any differently, but um, I had some very strange experiences in about 2005 to 2008. Um, when I'd become a Christian, I had got attacked by the devil. And I remember in the first five years or so having a great deal of difficulty over trying to distinguish between the activities of the devil and mental illness. Uh, I wasn't mentally ill, but... but uh, I, I had some people in my family and, and friends who were, and I'm just putting it out there that for me, this was a, I, I found the challenge starting at kind of base zero so difficult that I gave up. I just, I, you know, the, the danger is you either become a completely psychological, you, you either develop just a language of psychology or you, or you become what was thought of in those days as a fundamentalist. And I, so I, I'd become very much taken with Carl Gustav Jung and, at this point, I need to be as condensed as I can and to say that at the university, the main ideological driving force, philosophically and religiously, was, was Freud. Whether it was Freud or post-Freud or post-post-Freud or post-post-post-Freud, it didn't matter. He, he, was, he was everywhere. And the great thing about Jung was that Jung provided a psychological and an intellectual narrative that allowed you to fight, fight Freud on his own terms. And anyone who knows about the relationship between the two men, it was, it was really quite extraordinary. One of the things I saw that was going to happen was not only did Jung provide a legitimate language for Christian spirituality to, 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 to adopt, but, he was, but Jung was going to beat Freud in the stakes for the heart of the culture. Somewhere about 1990, Freud waned and Jung took over. And all the, lang all the Jungian language about, about um, uh, sliding scales of good and evil, shadow, and, 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 and it's a, the whole sliding scale of sexuality from one side to the other without a break, uh, and, and personas and masks and self-authentication, this is all Jung. So in the 1990s, this, this switch happened. Uh, where, where Freud was diminishing and Jung was taking over. And it was great for me because I could welcome people, I could introduce people to Jung and Jesus at the same time. And I had a, I had a whole armory of, 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 of language and concept and practice with which to say to my Freudian critics, hey, you guys are so last century. And because uh, the great thing about Freud was most of what he wrote was rubbish and it was invented rubbish. And so and this idea of of, um, of sexualizing everything, you, you probably you, you, you may not. Know. I mean, I just discovered this wonderful story. OK, here's a long bracket, but it's worth it. Prince Philip's mother had some mystical experiences and she was sectioned by her family and sent to a clinic in Switzerland where she became a patient of Freud. And Freud's response to her was to say, you're having these because you're too highly sexed and we can deal with it by bombarding your ovaries with x-rays. And if we bombard your ovaries with x-rays and we bring on the menopause fast, you won't have these mystical experiences anymore. So this is, this, this is, the, this is the guy who has given authority to a European and Western culture to become obsessed with, with sexuality. And um, he's no more competent than that. 
She escapes. She sets up, Philip's mother sets up an order of nuns. She heroically rescues Jews. She does everything that William James said you should do to test the legitimacy of religious experience. She delivers ethically. So whatever you think about her, her, her mystical experiences, she delivers. So we'll, we'll give them the pass. So I, I was doing wonderfully well, except then that evil came back and I found myself assaulted by evil. And this, this left me with a huge problem. Because if I was a good Jungian, there was no evil. I mean, Jung was very concerned with evil, but he he turned it into the kind into a kind of psychological inverse of good that needs to be kind of welcomed home like a truant adolescent. Basically, you've been too harsh on the truant adolescent, so bend a few rules, clean him up, welcome him back, and you'll find that you'll all get along very happily ever afterwards. It's, it's a terribly, terribly unsophisticated version of the shadow, but. Um, but if if evil is incapable of being welcomed in and integrated with the good, which is more the picture of the New Testament, then the worst thing you could do would be to give evil a a pass and say, let's just mop you up a bit and um, and welcome you. We've misunderstood you, and uh, we we can do with your energy. <laughs> so I had to rethink my faith, and I had to deal with the presence of evil, and I begun. And this was combined with looking down the road from a kind of vantage point on the top of a secular hill and seeing what was coming. So university culture is usually 10 to 15 years ahead of secular culture. And one of the things I could see was that increasingly the cancel culture was beginning to start. The cultural Marxist bandwagon was beginning to start. Actually, the thing that really begun it was, was in... This is going to sound a bit odd, but in the 1980s, I was a Bible smuggler to the Soviet Union. I got caught by the KGB and interrogated. I got to know Russia and Czechoslovakia quite well. I had a bad time at the hands of my interrogators. I didn't like it at all. My nerve was very nearly broken. I, I never gave any names away under interrogation, but, but it wasn't for lack of, of being invited to. And, and there was a kind of taste to the Soviet Union. It's very hard to explain it. It's a kind of taste and a smell. And you may remember in about 1995, Fukuyama wrote this very interesting book called The End of History, which is basically, you know, the capitalist Marxist thing, it's over. We can just, we can just now build a prosperous society. And somewhere about 2003, 2004, I tasted Marxism totalitarianism on the back of my palate. I know it's going to sound really weird, but I went, hey, where did that come from? You're dead and buried. You should not be here. This is the West and it's the end of history. How come I can taste you and smell you? And I, I thought, well, I better find out. And then I discovered the Frankfurt School. And, and, and I discovered all this time there had been a plan B. And if plan A wasn't going to work, and if you remember, Marx was convinced that the revolution would start not in Russia, but in England, where the Industrial Revolution was most developed. But just say none of this ever happened rather than any bit of it. Plan B was an all-out assault on our culture in order to make a transfer of power between those who had and those who didn't have along secularist, utilitarian, egalitarian grounds. And this had been working on under the surface nonstop, irrespective of whether Che Guevara managed to bring about a revolution in South America, irrespective of liberation theology, irrespective of, of Cuba. And this, this had, had got into the kind of underground waters of our culture, and it was certainly in the university where it was, where, and, and I began to realize, well, wait a moment, the nature of this thing is profoundly anti-Christian, profoundly anti-democracy, profoundly anti-freedom of speech. 
I'm in trouble. <laughs> what am I going to do about this thing? Well, I better get to know it better for a start. I better, I better. So as I get to, so two things happened. I got to know cultural Marxism a bit better uh, in the place where it's being practiced incoherently but effectively. And uh, and a fr- I used to run uh, some interreligious seminars. I, I lectured in. Uh, in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, a postgraduate course, and I had an interfaith team. And one of my colleagues was a very eminent Muslim scholar. And, and one day he declined to, to, to give the last talk of a long day. He said, I need to get home, Gavin. Uh, you know, we had a great day. Uh, and he was the kind of climax. But he said, I'm, I'm going to get off campus. There's going to be a traffic jam. Please just give my excuses. Tell them I've got a headache. And I said, I said, no, no, they want to hear you. It's very important. And then the, the next 30 seconds changed my life. <laughs> He said, look, I've been in Britain for 35 years. I'm a very well-respected figure. I've been turning up to these events all this time. My job is done. Britain will be an Islamic Republic by the time my grandchildren grow up. It's, it's, it's in place now. I, I don't need to do any of this anymore. I'm going home. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, since you ask, there's no harm in telling you. Uh, there was a big project at the time to, to, to elect mayors in all our major urban cities. It, it kind of went off half in, in a halfway house. But he said, in, in five, six or seven of the major northern cities in England, over half of the people under 16 are Muslim. And in 30 years' time, it'll be over half of the population. And they've been granted political power to choose their own mayors. They will choose Muslim mayors. And the Muslim mayors were mandated to bring in Sharia law because that's, that's, that's going to happen. So he said, you know, there may be some kind of split. You know, you may get to keep a bit of white England, maybe Cornwall, maybe Wales, and we maybe get the north, you know, London. But he said, it's unstoppable now, because the, because the demographics will have a democratic outcome. So I, I, I went away and I, I googled the figures. He was absolutely right. And so I began to discuss this with people. And, they, and, and people said, but you can't talk about this. It's Islamophobic. I said, I'm not Islamophobic. I'm really interested in Islam. And I, I, I'm, I know quite a lot about it. And I was at the time researching a, a 13th century figure who was trying to, to, to do something of what we're doing today in terms of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, kind of a dialogue. And, and I, I, began, I began to discover that people didn't know anything about Islam. They literally knew nothing about it at all. And the media had invented a, a form of Islam, which it called Islamism, which is a, a, a political version of Islam with political ambitions. But the trouble is, that isn't Islam. Islam doesn't allow you to do that. Islam is this extraordinary composite of religion and politics, and you can't divide them. Um, you, do, you, do, you, know, you destroy the thing. It's not, it's not polite. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like saying, you know, you have two names, a family name and a surname, but I'm, only, I'm going to ignore one of your names and never refer to you in that way because that's not you at all. And you say, no, you can't do that. I, you know, I have two names. Islam has two facets, and the question was why was why was the media doing this? Why why did it become impossible? So um, I had my own radio show in on the BBC, and I became a little known, and pe- people the media began to phone me up and ask me for questions, and very very carefully because I was aware of the tightrope I was walking. I tried to find ways of saying telling the truth about what Islam really was without allowing people to call me Islamophobic. But I remember getting up, at, my, my, my daughter was 15, and we'd get up at six o'clock and she'd say, hey, Daddy, you're in the newspapers again. 
Uh, and there came a point when MI5 phoned up and said, you can't go to St. James's Palace to preach a sermon because uh, we've picked up the fact there's an assassination threat against you. And I said, that's okay. I'm a Christian. I, I, you know, my forebears have been martyred. If, they, if I get shot by Muslims for going to preach St. James's Palace, well, that'll be interesting. <laughs> I shall go to heaven as, as a martyr, and, um, uh, but, but I'm not, not going to go. And they said, no, no, you, you're not going to go. The queen doesn't want your blood on her carpet. And the political implications, this is not just about dry cleaning, the political implications of an assassination of a royal chaplain uh, are not ones that we can contemplate. So you're not allowed to go. And I, I said, well, that's, that's outrageous. You, you know, I, have, I, I didn't have a constitutional right, but I said, you know, what you're telling me is you know, suddenly we, we rejoice in these institutions that are seven or 800 years old and they, they do things. And the moment you say, okay, let it do something, they say, no, it's all, it's all pretense, it doesn't matter. So I said, anyway, so what happened was they said, well, if the chatter dies down and they, they seem, you know, they, they want to assassinate somebody else before you, you go there, we'll let you go with an armed guard. So they, they did. They let me go. And there was a very heavy armed presence when I went to St. James's Palace. And, and, uh, and I didn't put any of this out in the public space because it was too problematic to do so. But uh, there came a moment when the gay dean of a Scottish cathedral had an epiphany mass during which he replaced St. Paul with Mohammed. And, and I said to myself, nah, it's Scotland. It's not my business. I don't have to do anything about this. Stumm, don't, this is not the moment. But the following day, uh, a whole load of his students then complained. And in fact, many of them wrote to me and said, you know, you know you're our spokesman. We, we look to you to help us. Because he's gone to the police and anybody who's complaining is now being visited by the Scottish police and accused of homophobia. So, so when, when, we, when we say excuse us, you know, we worship in this cathedral, we don't want Mohammed instead of St. Paul. The next thing that happened was a knock on the door by the police. So at that point, I thought, well, OK, this is not about interprovincial stuff anymore. This is about this is a bigger issue. And I, I wrote a letter to the Times saying we have a problem. And then, you know, so the, the next thing that happens is rather quaint. The person who has all the power in the, in the, in, in the royal family is the Lord Chamberlain. Uh, and if you Google the Lord Chamberlain, you discover that, that it was the Lord Chamberlain's department that dealt with censorship of the theatres. And uh, he's kind of the head of, a, of, of the civil service that has to do with the royal family. And with this delightful man phoned me up at 10 o'clock at night and said, Dr. Ashenden, uh, we need to have an urgent uh, conversation. We have a problem. So... I had been being lent on by the Archbishop of Canterbury and by his bishops for about five years, all of them telling me, shut up, keep quiet, stop saying the things you're saying, get out of the public space. And I said to them each time, if you, if you tell me what I've said and you show me where it, it offends Jesus or the Christian tradition or it's in any way irresponsible or a dereliction of my duty, I will pay attention to what you're saying. But don't you just tell me to shut up. <laughs> That's not... <laughs> so, um, so now it's the Lord Chamberlain. So I say, okay, so we can get, get to the heart of the matter, on a scale of one to 10, how serious is this? He said, yeah, well, I think it's nine. Okay. Uh, and then, I mean, I'll never forget the conversation. So he said, okay, Dr. Ashton, the problem is this. There is a public perception that when you speak about matters of faith in the public realm, the Queen listens to you and, is a, and, and, and pays attention. Now, this wouldn't be a problem if, if 
there was a possibility that she did. <laughs> because she might do that, we have a problem. And there's a, another perception in the public space that when, when you say things, you might be expressing the Queen's point of view. And the problem we have is that you might be. <laughs> so now, he said, you know the constitutional deal. How do we deal with this? I said, I do know the constitutional deal. The Queen has to be kept out of these matters at all costs. Therefore, you're either inviting me to be silent or to resign. Well, he said, that's, that's a very fair summary of our conversation, <laughs> though they're your words and not mine. <laughs> so I said, give me 24 hours to sleep on it. And then actually, to, to those of you who are pious, I think the Holy Spirit uh, put two words in my head and uh, I tried them out on him. Uh, and he said, yes, that, that, that sums up the position. So the following day, I resigned. And then what I wanted to do was to go quietly because I was embarrassed. I thought, OK, I've, all this time I've been trying to make the most of the platform I have to speak in the public space without the wheels falling off. And, you know, a, a clever, competent man doesn't let the wheels fall off. And the wheels have just fallen off. So I've screwed up. I'll, I'll just go quietly. <laughs> So I said to the Lord Chamberlain, OK, um, you'll have my resignation uh, by, by in three days' time because I'm going on the BBC tomorrow. And they always check your, you know, just like you did with me, they, they check your titles and your credentials and who are you. And, and they'll say, you chaplain the Queen. And I'll say, not anymore. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, why not? <laughs> and then I will become the story and I don't want that to happen. And he said, um, I, I, I will consult. And he came back and he said, the, the, the Queen wants your resignation by the end of the day. I said, but I, I haven't made myself clear. If you do that, there's going to be a media storm. And let's avoid that. I'm sorry I didn't make myself clear. He said, you made yourself perfectly clear. The Queen wants your resignation by the end of today. And I said, then there'll be a media storm. I'll repeat myself. He said, the Queen wants your resignation by the end of the day. Okay, you'll have it. And I, I think she gave me the media storm as a kind of parting gift. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and so there was a media storm and um, I said I resigned because it is incompatible with holding an office in the Royal Ecclesiastical Household to have a public discussion about Islam and about homosexuality and hate crimes. And uh, my first allegiance is to Jesus, to the, to the, to the church, uh, to the kingdom, and I'm not going to be silent. And if that means I have to give stuff up, I'll give it up. So then by the end of the week, I was on Fox News and on the Bolt Report, it's Box East in America and the Bolt Report in, in Australia. And, and, um, and I'd become, you know, a kind of a la Andy Warhol famous for 15 minutes. And then people began misreporting it a bit. <laughs> and so I thought, OK, um, I, need, I, need, I need to set the narrative out. So I, I put up a, my first web page ever and I, I, I put it out there. Uh, and the interest didn't stop coming. Um, and I think I probably, uh, well, I was checking my YouTube statistics today. I mean, I, um, an impression isn't very much, but I've had 3 million impressions. And my latest YouTube video has had 70,000 hits. Uh, OK, it, it's about Jordan Peterson and Jesus. That's an easy one. But nonetheless, um, the, the, the traction has continued. And so I found myself having to resign as a canon theologian, resign as chaplain to the Queen, 
And at the same time, I'd been doing as much thinking as I could about feminism, about the components of cultural Marxism and about the different components that, that, of which feminism, gay marriage, um, the whole trans business, and then, then what comes down the road after that. And although I've been brought up as a feminist, I mean, anyone who's educated after 1955 has been brought up where, uh, with, in the culture of, of equal human rights for both genders. And it's a kind of no-brainer. Nobody in their right mind would ever say there should not be equal rights for men and women. Of, of course there should. What kind of idiot would you have to be to complain about that? But, but the problem is that, that not everything is about rights and power. And one of the exceptions to that is the church. There had never been any theological discussion about, about the place of feminism in the church. And as I began to think it through, I, I, I began to take the view that uh, that feminism was used as a kind of spearhead um, to mix my metaphors. Imagine the Trojan horse has a spearhead. <laughs> uh, so, so there's a spearhead and then there's a Trojan horse behind it. And I had decided that that feminism was actually really much more dangerous than people said. And this was before we got to second wave feminism and then the disastrous third wave feminism, which of course has been at the root of saying uh, universal subjectivity is a norm you can remake the world in any format that your you that you your inside of your imagination prefers. Because I had always been a Catholic Anglican, I didn't believe the Anglican Church had the right to change the the DNA of the church without the whole of the church, West and East, coming together for an ecumenical council and saying, hey guys, for 19th century, we and our Lord got all this wrong. Really an integral part of the kingdom of heaven is egalitarian power relations between the sexes and we're really, really sorry that we were befuddled by, by biology and a whole lot of other things and we didn't get on this earlier. Um, and if the pill had come along in, in, in 550 instead of 1950, we, we might have got there sooner. And I, I couldn't believe that the pill, which is essentially the, the mechanism that changed the relationship between the genders, I couldn't believe it was of such theological significance that, that you know, this was the, like the watershed between two kinds of Christianity, an evolved kind and a primitive kind. So when women were consecrated as bishops in the Church of England, what had been an experiment to be reflected on became apostasy to my mind. And I, well, okay, I have to, I have to stop being an Anglican. That It was great while it lasted, but, but I must become a... Well, I, I then became a, a continuing an American Anglican, and, and and then I realized that without the magisterium, you can have no church, and, and I became a Catholic. Just building on some of your, your last comments, I've seen the, the video on YouTube uh, you posted a couple of years ago where you describe things in your own words, uh, given all the attention that, that, was, that was rising, and you made a very interesting observation that a, a major impetus uh, for your departure was that the Church of England had become more about revolution than revelation. Could you talk a little bit more to that theme uh, and that development? There has always been, and there must always be, a very difficult tension between, between what the Church does on earth and the ultimate reality of heaven. And like so many things in life, although... Uh, that uh, we are looking for a balance in which both components get their proper articulation and expression. And if you place too much emphasis on heaven, then you 
then you're being irresponsible about your duties to the society you live amongst. If you forget about heaven and you just express all your responsibility politically, you are being irresponsible towards God and, and towards our Lord. So there has to be some kind of fusion. And the church is only human. We, we tottle and totter between the two. We have to cut ourselves some slack. And the wonderful thing about Christian history is that um, the Holy Spirit has often, always, always, in fact, rescued the church when it's gone too far, one way or the other. You know, I mean, it, it, the promises of God are, are, are most reassuring and dramatic when you look at when you look at Christian history. Uh, I remember a, a, a woman becoming a Roman Catholic in the 1980s, just after the BBC had produced a film on the Borgias. And, and somebody said to her, how, how on earth can you become a Catholic now after everyone has seen the appalling immoral mess the Borgias made in, in the papacy? And she said, well, the thing is this, no human organization could survive that level of decay and hypocrisy and decadence by itself. And yet it's produced Mother Teresa and a whole lot of other saints. So as soon as I saw that, that within the Catholic Church, sanctity still broke through the concrete slabs of its secularism, I realized there had to be a force doing this that demanded my complete attention. And so it wasn't the Borgias who stopped me being a Catholic. It was Mother Teresa of Calcutta, despite the Borgias, that made me a Catholic. And I thought that was, so that was, a very, that was very good. And um, what the Church of England has done is by, by breaking its links permanently. I mean, for the whole of my lifetime, the Church of England said, we are the Catholic Church in this country. I know we're Catholic light. I know we do things as and when we please. I know they're incoherent. I know we've not got a very good track record for producing saints. But there's a kind of tiny, tiny umbilical cord of legitimacy. And, and, and it's there. And I thought, OK, well, for as long as it's there, that, that tiny umbilical cord is enough. But when women were made priests and then bishops, that cord is broken. I mean, it just is, you know, you, you cannot reconfigure the church without the rest of the church uh, at such an important level and still say we are part of the Catholic Church. No, you, you've become a liberal Protestant church. But what happened to liberal Protestantism? Well, first of all, it's, it's, the, it's the father and mother of atheism. I mean, it, and, and secondly, uh, it's run completely out of steam and, and has become almost entirely progressified. And so every, the church in every society has the duty either to convert the state into Christendom or it gets converted. There is no halfway house. I mean, you can, you, you, you can be tamed and, and produce a kind of patina of icing and, and ethics over a society like the, like the Reichkirche did in Germany in the 1930s. But the Reichkirche was tamed by the German state. Um, Hitler set out to do exactly that. And there come moments when, when the state begins to develop ambitions that are profoundly anti-Christian. And uh, the abortion law is an absolutely critical part of the profound anti-Christianity of the state. Uh, I haven't mentioned it, but, it but, but the moment you see that, it becomes non-negotiably important. The Church of England has, in every single respect, been converted by the state to secular ethical values, in every respect. And, and, and consequently, well, the consequences are obvious. <laughs> right. I think, there's, I think there's a very profound lesson from that insight and, and a lesson from your life and your own personal experience. And 
I think this is where this is this is a, a suitable point to put a bow on our conversation and, and, and bring things to a close. It strikes me, I mean, you were you were previously part of the establishment in the establishment church in an establishmentarianism country. You're now no longer part of the state-sanctioned church, let alone its establishment. You're on the other side of the fence. You're now a member of the Catholic Church. In these early days, as a member of the Catholic flock, sticking with that lesson and that theme of revelation over revolution, what do you think the Catholic Church needs to be aware of and Catholics need to be mindful of in this, this dance with the state and, and guarding against being tamed and guarding against the creep of revolution that can displace revelation. What, what, what are the lessons for Catholics in all this? Well, the Anglican Church has done the Catholic Church an enormous favor. A, a bit like the canary down the mine, it has taken a deep draft of the air and it has found itself poisoned and died. And so the Catholic Church ought to say, well, there's a problem in the mine. Uh, and and as you as everyone knows, the same civil the, you know there is civil war raging in the Catholic Church at the moment. All the issues I've described are alive and well. And you know there's a whole range of opinion about the extent to which Vatican II is responsible. Vatican II is compromised. Vatican II is not compromised. It was a, a, a pastoral uh, measure. Uh, or um, and and so Catholicism is having exactly the same discussion. And what it needs to do is to look at Anglicanism, which has tried it out and to see what the effects of it are. And the other thing it needs to do is it probably needs to read Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, which has just been published, because Dreher, like me, has been profoundly influenced by what happened in the, behind the Iron Curtain between 1917 and 1989. Uh, as, as interestingly has Jordan Peterson, a great deal of Jordan Peterson's energy comes from his very clear reading of Solzhenitsyn, uh, and Dostoevsky, and and and, and I mean, I, one of the reasons I did this podcast on Peterson the other day was because that was how I grew up too, Solzhenitsyn and, and Dostoevsky. I was very clear indeed what would happen, you know, what what Marxism intended to do, whether it's Marxism 1.0 with the rising of the proletariat and the destruction of capitalism, or Marxism 2.0 with the assault on culture and the undoing of all Judeo-Christian ethics, and what the Catholic Church needs needs to do is to say, okay, every so often in our history, there comes an enemy or a state or a spirit or a faction or a force that is utterly inimical to who we are. This enemy has now revealed itself. It's out there. And um, we, must, we, must be, we must not be polluted by it. We must prepare for it to kill us. And we may have to go back to the catacombs. I guess I was not the only person to be astonished when Benedict, for whom I have a lot of affection and respect, said 10 to 15 years ago, in a way that sounded like he meant it prophetically, the Catholic Church is going to undergo a dreadful time and is going to be reduced to a small but faithful remnant. And, and, and I and a lot of other people said, how can a Pope say such things? This is, this is, this is, this is not good PR. <laughs> and I think he said it because it's true. And we can now see why it's becoming true. And that's why I said I wasn't being casual or romantic or histrionic when I said I think that our generation is having to learn to uh, manage the prospect of martyrdom. Uh, Well-informed people will know that Christians are the most martyred people across the globe today, even though the media refuses 
to tell the truth about it. And given the power relations of what I would call the left and the new religious right. And for me, the new religious right is not Trump, it's Islam. So, so the left is cultural Marxism and the new, the new religious right, this, this political authoritarian Christian heresy, which is called Islam, they have, they have, they have allied themselves over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and the left misunderstands Islam because it has no theology and no religious understanding, it's uneducated. And it thinks Islam is only a form of Arabic Judeo-Christianity. And because the left, left has, has, the left has disabled Christianity so effectively, by mainly seducing Christian intellectuals, it thinks it can do the same to Islam. Islam will be as, as hungry for secular seduction as, as the church was. And it's made a dreadful mistake. It won't be. So the, what I see is happening is that the left with cancel culture will deprive us of free speech, lock us up for hate crimes, for telling the truth about Christian ethics. And then in about 10 to 15 times, Islam will call time on the left and... Uh, and then there will be a, a new power across much of the globe. And what should Christians do? Well, we should say our prayers <laughs> and be as faithful to our Lord as we possibly can be in the circumstances he's put us in. And if he's given us responsibility for loving him and serving him in a time where it is going to be costly and demanding, then we should see it as a privilege and a great responsibility. And among other things, look to the wonderful witnesses and examples that the martyrs in your neck of the woods over the years have given us the Thomas Moores, the Edmund Campions, Thomas Beckett's, and, and John Fisher's. We're so fortunate to have them as our models. We've been so fortunate to have you as our guest, Dr. Ashenden. We could go on all day. I think in the interests of <laughs> both our time, our, our schedules, uh, uh, our listeners' good graces, as much as it pains me to do it, I, I think we're going to draw things to a close here. I think the final thing, though, that, that's on the tip of my tongue, and I, and I can't resist, and I want to invite our listeners to participate and share in this. My understanding is there is a process underway that is that is exploring the prospect of your potential ordination as a priest in the Catholic Church. I don't know maybe if you can give us a quick snapshot on where that stands, but if nothing else, I wanted to acknowledge that uh, and invite our listeners to pray that the Lord's will be done in that process and that, that God and the Holy Spirit can take that uh, where he wills it. But is, are there any insights you can share in that regard? Um, well, I can say that um, one of the reasons for my being received into the Catholic Church was my local Catholic bishop said, Father, you're really a Catholic. Uh, it's when are you going to convert? And I said, at some point before my deathbed. <laughs> he said, would you mind doing it next month? Because <laughs> I, I need you. And I said, well, I'd like to do it in a couple of years' time and write a book. He said, write a pamphlet and come next month. Uh, and then he said, I will ask, we will ask them whether you're a bishop, because there were reasons for thinking that my, uh, my line of legitimacy derived from a Roman Catholic bishop of Brazil in the 19, uh, 1940s who fell out with the Vatican. We will we'll ask them whether you're a bishop or, or, or if you're, whether I can ordain you as a priest, but there are no guarantees. You may end up as a Catholic layman. I can't promise you anything. We have to ask Rome. Are you willing to come across on that basis? And I said, well, of course. So Rome then said, it will take seven years to answer the question of whether you're a bishop. Would you like us to embark on it? <laughs> I said, I don't think so. Uh, so then they, so they're, they're now asking the question of whether they can give the bishop permission to ordain me as one of his diocesan priests. And the answer is my life is in the Lord's hands. And uh, I will accept whatever he gives me 
uh, through the discernment of the church. There are two different responsibilities. One has a certain kind of responsibility and a bit less freedom. The other has more freedom and a bit less responsibility. Uh, I'll accept from the Lord whatever he chooses, but I'd be very glad of your prayers because the next, you know, the next 20 years are going to be, they're going to be very demanding years. And um, we, we need to be as fit and as faithful as Catholics as we can be. Well, rest assured, you have our prayers. I invite our listeners to offer theirs as well. And uh, I invite them to uh, share in the thanks that we're extending to you for graciously sharing your insights, your experience with us today. It's been a true blessing. Dr. Gavin Ashenden, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your, your generosity and for your patience, and especially for your prayers. God bless you all. All the best. God bless. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.